Thank you, Bill. Um, hopefully you have your Bible still open to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are going to continue our study through 1 Peter um, this morning. Um, one of the things in studying 1 Peter that one uh, author or pastor uh, noted is that one of the characteristics of 1 Peter, one of the major themes in the book of 1 Peter is who you are in Christ, that Peter informs us by reading this book, we, we figure out, we come to determine who we are in Christ. And, and what I want you to see this morning, a clearer picture um, from the Gospels, uh, from, from God's Word, uh, from the letters, uh, from the epistles, all over the Bible, the Old Testament, we see that, that who you are, who you are in relation to God, uh, determines how you live. And this is really the linchpin. I know we've been talking quite a bit about suffering. And determining whether or not someone would suffer really comes back to a matter of who they are in Christ. What their relationship with God is like. So today, as you heard, as Bill read, um, part of what we're going to be talking about is our Christians who are in a pagan world. And they're being confronted or they're being they're suffering because there are activities that they're not taking part in. Look, look at the list in verse three. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and, and abominable idolatries. Um, one of the things that I said earlier, and I don't know about your upbringing, but uh, this was a part of a favorite group of passages that my youth pastor growing up liked to talk about. And that's good. It's good. It's good uh, to make that distinction. But what I hope that you hear this morning is that this just wasn't written to a bunch of youth. That there's, I hope that you see uh, and maybe even are convicted because you feel uh, the temptation as an adult towards some of these things as well. Uh, there's also a temptation to... Uh, develop a sermon about dancing, booze, and rock and roll. Uh, and that's not what the sermon is going to be about this morning. Uh, I, I'm not even going to give you, um, uh, on some of the, the things in this list, um, what you may be asking for is, okay, well, Lewis, give me the line. Where's the line in some of these things? And, and what I hope you come to uh, this morning is that that's an awful question. When it comes to some of the things in this list or, or things that this list may draw to mind, asking the question of where is the line is really an awful question. The question that we should be asking, the question we should be asking is, how can I live in such a way? Do I love God so much that I desire a godly life so much that how do I live in such a way that the question that's on my mind is how can I live uh, in a way that is most pleasing to God. Most pleasing to God. <laughs> I think many of us, even as adults, uh, live with our relationship with God a lot like we lived, at least I lived, as a teenager in the home of my parents of trying to figure out where the line was and what I could get away with and what I could sneak around and do. Versus at looking at God and my relationship with Him in such a way that brings me so much joy and so much completeness and so much peace 
that the question that my soul is begging to, to figure out is how can I live a life that is pleasing to Him? Peter, this is not a foreign concept in this book. If you uh, were to turn over to chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through 8. Notice some of the wording here. In this you greatly rejoice. This idea of rejoicing in this relationship with God, this salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result and the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory. Just a chapter later, a few verses later, in the second chapter, starting in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You cannot proclaim excellencies if you have not experienced them and tasted them and see them for yourself. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Hopefully, you were able to tune in on Gary's lectures on worldviews. And um, uh, one of the things that's very helpful were, were one of the charts that Gary used. Um, where it talks about that your worldview determines your values. This is how it should work. Your worldview determines your values, which determine your behaviors. And so what you're going to see this morning, uh, kind of according to this line of thought, if your worldview is informed by who you are in Christ, so this is where your worldview comes from, your new identity, your relationship with Christ, then that should determine your values, and you'll hear about that a little more, which then will determine your behavior. And the other picture that Gary pointed out that you see in this passage is that most people, the world, tends to live according to that, to, to that being uh, inverted so that your behaviors, what you like to do, determines what your values are going to be, which then determines what your worldview is, which leads to folly and destruction. So, as we look at this context this morning, I think... I think we'll draw some parallels to our own day and age that in this context we know that Peter is writing to a group of people who are not at home within the culture, to a people who have a different worldview, so much so that he calls them aliens and strangers and foreigners. Christians, according to the culture of this context, were looked at as uh, buzzkills, as killjoys. And one um, commentator noted... um, that they were considered haters of humanity, traitors to the Roman way of life. That the Roman way of life was going in such a direction that Christians, because they uh, refused to take part in some of that, were looked at as traitors of humanity. That they abstained from the parties, the drunkenness, the free sexual expression. So this morning, this morning... What we're going to see is Peter writing to these Christians, 
writing to these Christians in this society and tell them to keep going. He knows the pressure. He knows the temptation. He is writing them to encourage them to abstain, even though abstaining from these things is going to cause them to suffer. And the reason that this is so vitally important is that if they're not abstaining and therefore going through the suffering, it means that they are going along and that will make a shipwreck of their faith. And will destroy their witness. So this morning, I hope you see, as we dig into these verses, um, how this all comes together. So let's look at verse 1 together. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purposes, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This word, therefore, I think goes back to chapter 3, verse 17. That section Uh, where it says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And if you remember, as Gary covered uh, these verses over the course of two weeks that culminated in that verse, what you saw was that Gary told us over and over that what we are to be doing as Christians, what Peter was calling the church, uh, these Christians to do, was to trace Christ. And last week, as we looked at those verses, I said that uh, Peter was not calling us to trace or mimic Christ because last week we looked at things that only Christ could do. Peter picks this theme back up and says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, trace Christ. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Be like He was. Be like He is. And know that it's going to create suffering. Mimic Christ. And we know that Christ told us things like this. If they hated me, they're going to what? Hate you. He said things like, pick up your cross daily and follow me. He said things like that we don't have a home in this world and in this culture. And what was the result of Christ living this way? He suffered greatly. And so, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Peter tells us, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, the same resolve. Know that what you are heading towards is that you are going to be, you're going to suffer. You're going to be maligned is what our text tells us. Now, very interesting here, and we need to work this out. Um, Gary purposefully gave me three really difficult verses in the past two weeks. Um, I scared him, I think, by saying I was only going to verse uh, 5 this week, which meant he would have gotten one next week. But we're going to cover them all. But notice the second phrase here in 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 chapter 4, verse 1, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what in the world does this mean? Some people, there's really two ways that you can take this. One way is to look at this and say, okay, well, he who has suffered in the flesh, that's Jesus. And so Jesus has suffered in the flesh and he has ceased from sin. Well, that doesn't really fit. Jesus didn't have to cease from sin because Jesus never sinned, right? So so it doesn't really fit. So I think it's clear that the text is saying those who have suffered have ceased from sin. Which on the outset should make you say, "Well, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've met some suffering Christians and they still sin." Yes, you're right, they do. So what he's not saying is that suffering does something to you and it burns away something so that you live a life where you don't sin. 
But, but, but notice what I do think it is saying, and I think there's something really powerful here. He's saying that because he who has suffered has ceased from sin. What he is saying is this. Those who are willing to live a life in such a way that they are undergoing suffering because the way they are living life demonstrates that they have, they have been able to act in a way that their behaviors are moving in a way that demonstrates they're no longer under the power of sin. That they're able to choose to live, what we're going to see in a minute, according to the will of God and not according to the flesh or to the, to the ways of man. Not that they're never going to sin again or they're going to be senseless, but they're not controlled by the life of sin any longer. And we see that they're not controlled because not only are they willing not to do it, the things that are sinful, but they're willing to do it even though it means suffering. They're going away from this idea of this sin culture. And, and the, the context makes sense. Just look real quickly. So, as, so they've ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Who has done that? Those who are showing that they're willing to suffer for the will of God than to sin. Verse 3, for the time has already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. So it's saying that you have, the time has passed. You, so you have ceased from sinning. And then in verse 5, uh, verse 4, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them. So that I think it's very clear what's going on here. That the willingness of these people that Peter is writing to the church, and I think that we can take a lot from this, is the, the, the willingness to, to follow the will of God versus the culture of sin. That, that we desire obedience so much that we're willing to suffer hardships and pain because of it. That we have this commitment and this resolve, this worldview that informs what we value, that influences our behavior into this new way of life and that it demonstrates that sin no longer has that grip over us. Now, I want you to notice just uh, quickly the suffering that is in view here. Um, I do think, and we know from history, um, that the suffering that's in view, it may sound um, uh, trivial and minor this morning, but it led to uh, bigger points of suffering. Notice in verse 4, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They malign you, which means to blaspheme or to revile or to slander. And so the question that I would have right off the bat this morning as we're jumping into these verses is, is this. When it says in verse 1 that we are to arm ourselves, how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves uh, to suffer? How do we arm ourselves in this way? And I think there are three things that these first couple, two verses tell us. And, and the first thing that we see is this. The first thing we see from verse 1 is sin is not the final master over you. We saw that just a second ago. That you, in Christ, you have power over sin. That you can say no. That you can stand 
firm. And so the way that we prepare ourselves is to know that sin no longer has that mastery over us and we can stand against it and we can live according to the will of God, not the desires of the flesh. The second thing that, that, that we see, and we see this in several places in these verses, and Peter does this over and over again in this book, and he talks about time, and he talks about the time now and the time to come. And so let's look at verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men. So, so what Peter is saying here, don't live the rest of this time in the flesh according to this. There is another time that you need to live for and that you can be motivated by. And just knowing this helps us to live in this world to live for eternity again in verse five and six. Notice this, th- th- this comes back up a little later in these verses. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for the gospel has has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Again, pointing to a judgment, pointing to another time. And this is a powerful motivator. The whole idea is that this world is not all that there is. That there is another world so that we can spend this time living differently and suffering if we have to. And then the last way that we arm ourselves. The last way that we arm ourselves. And this is going to percolate into, I think, an important question. But let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. Second part of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And I have said this already many times, because I want it to be driven down deep in your brain and in your soul, that the third way that we arm ourselves is that we, we build up in ourselves a with the Lord's help, with the Spirit's help, a strong desire to live out the will of God versus the lust of man. Now, I think for many of us, this, this, this last point proposes a problem. And, and I want to I kind of draw something out uh, because I want to be helpful to you this morning. But the way that I hear a lot of Christians talking um, about these sorts of matters, the will of God and how the world, the culture is living, it's almost like that you're, um, uh, and I didn't use this example this morning, but I'll I'll use it now. Um, When Casey and I were first married, we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now, we were very poor. And so uh, what most people who were doing this did ate a meal at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Casey and I had been live backpacking and living in a tent for about a week and had been eating uh, tuna fish out of a packet and peanut butter and bagels. And so sometimes I view this as the Christian life. We think this is the Christian life. Casey and I were sitting outside with our tuna fish packets and we were smelling this steak dinner. We were literally on the porch and I was like, can't you just let a poor seminary student in? I was willing to use anything at that moment to go... But I think sometimes as Christians, that's how we view our life versus what the world is doing, that we're just kind of sitting on the sidelines being like, oh, they're having so much fun. That looks so great. 
Or another way that I've heard people describe this is that the world is going on and the world is doing their thing and they're having all this fun and we're just expected to sit over in the corner very peacefully and read our Bibles. There's a problem with this. There's a problem with this. The problem with this is your view of God and your view of your relationship with God. In the scenario that I was talking about, you sound, I sound in saying those things a lot like the Romans. Why are you so strange? Do you not know what life is about? Being a Christian is a joy kill. And I want to say, no, no, no. That being a Christian is a life that is filled with seeing and experiencing the glory of God. Being a Christian is, is, is about seeing and experiencing the joy that comes from the Lord that is better than anything in this life. It is a life of adventure, of living for the King of kings and the Lord of lords and serving a purpose in this world that is beyond our wildest imaginations and expectations. I mean, think about it for a moment that we could be involved for praying for a little nine-month-old girl and that God might heal her. There's nothing better than that. The peace that passes all understanding. The purpose so that our relationship with God becomes desirable, becomes the most important thing about us, and that we would even be willing to suffer for that because it means so much to us. This is not a view that the will of God is a buzzkill, as the pagans might view that, but Christians should be more joyful. They should celebrate more. We should have better relationships, better marriages. We should be fulfilled at a higher level. Because who we are in Christ means everything. And it defines everything about us. And it makes everything else that we do really, really, really matter. I want to jump back again to chapter 1 really quick. Read two verses and then jump forward again and read another verse. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And then here, verse 2 again. Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And what I want to ask you this morning is, do you desire this? Not, I'm not asking, are you doing this? That's important as well. But I'm asking you this morning, do you desire this? Do you desire to be holy as God is holy? Do you desire to do the will of God over the lust, over following the lust and the course of this world? And if you don't, what I would beg of you and what I have had to do many times in my own life is to spend a lot of times in prayer asking God through the spirit to change my desire. And the good news this morning is that we're not asking him to change our desires into some uh, uh, lesser thing, but we're asking him to change our desires so that we desire the most wonderful, greatest thing in the universe, namely him and his will. And so even this morning, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, if you would get that and if you would commit to pray for this,
And if you would be open to a relationship that is exhilarating and is great with the God of the universe. So when we arm ourselves. We arm ourselves meaning, meaning arm ourselves with the joy and the satisfaction that comes with doing the will of God and knowing that we're gaining everything and losing nothing. Now, as we transition into verse three, we notice the the clear connection for the time has already passed and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Uh, Peter is just saying again, like he said earlier in this letter, that, that that type of life is empty and it's futile. And you should know that because you Christians have walked that life and you know the difference. This list that we look at here, it's not exhaustive. But what Peter is pointing out is he is pointing out uh, as these people are embedded in a culture that some of the things that are important in this culture should create a, a, a negative taste in our mouth. Things like the, the Roman risque theater, which all sorts of lawlessness and things were being uh, uh, paraded in front of the people who would go to these things that were just awful. And we, we know from... From history and from artifacts that, that was happening. Um, the, the spectacle that was the, the gladiator. And some of the things that went on there as well. Seeing men and, and women and things killed uh, for fun. For sport. And the drunkenness and debauchery that took place in the cities. That Peter as he's writing this. There's a clear connection. You know this is not the will of God for your life. You were called for something different, for something better. For many weeks, we have preached to you that the Christian in Peter, in the pagan society, is called to live in such a way that he gets along with other others. That I've used the phrase that Christians should be some of the best citizens there are around. But we've also cautioned you that there are times when Christians should break with culture. And one would obviously be if, if we were put forward to deny God, deny Jesus, we break with culture. Another place that we break with culture is when we're asked to behave in such a way that demonstrates that our passions and our aims in life are sinful versus according to the will of God. Look at verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. So this takes them off guard. They are enjoying the desires of the flesh. They are enjoying the cultural practices. They are enjoying the things in this list so much that when you do not go along with them, when Peter's readers do not go along with them, they're surprised and they're saying, what is wrong with you? So when you abstain, when you don't join them, when you don't literally run with them, as our text says, not only do they take note, but notice what also it says. This is where the suffering comes in. It doesn't just say, oh, they take note. 
It says they malign you. Why would that be? The reason is, as Christians embedded in a culture, when we do things that are at odds with the culture, especially uh, when we abstain from certain things that are sinful behaviors, I think, I know, one of the things that's going on is that by just abstaining from certain things that we're seen as judging. Because we are making a judgment. We're saying, this is not according to the will of God. I am not going to do this thing. So that the people that are doing them, not only do they feel judged, but they feel like that we are telling them that they are doing something wrong. And so they get defensive and start acting in a certain way towards us. Have you ever experienced this? One of the examples that, um, I, that I could think of that still pains me uh, to this day is uh, two guys that I grew up with that were uh, some of my best friends growing up. We were just, you know, thickest thieves. And, um, you know, part of my testimony is I came to know the Lord at nine, but it wasn't until I was almost 21. Uh, there was some growth, and then there was just, just this time where I went off the path and uh, into some things, some behaviors um, started forming in me that were ungodly. And then uh, in the middle of my college uh, life, God just overwhelmed me. And um, uh, my life trajectory, uh, th- this was God taking, you know, taking me and saying, hey, you're mine. And this is the trajectory and started me on this path. And so one of the things that happened is that many of my behaviors changed almost instantaneously, almost instantaneously. And so when I came home from college and uh, as, as I was apt to do, hang out with my friends, um, it made for some very awkward situations. And, and two of these friends, one of them was overtly hostile towards me. Um, uh, we, this is a common example. We would just be hanging out at Waffle House eating and he would have uh, you know, been partaking of some things. And he would just kind of pick a fight with me. What? It would almost come out of the blue. Like, what? Why are you judging me? And I was like, I, what are you talking about? Like, I don't care how you have your eggs. I'm not talking about my eggs. You know, and it was, what he was upset about is that you're not doing this with us anymore. You're not running this path. You're saying this is wrong. He was being confronted by something. Another one of my friends was not outwardly, overtly against me like that, but he would disappear. There were things that he wouldn't do in front of me because he felt guilty, and I still to this day don't understand uh, how in such a quick time he could disappear to the bathroom and just be going to the bathroom and come out drunk. I don't understand that, but it happened. So what we have to know, what we have to know That as Christians embedded in a non-Christian culture, a culture that says, do you, what you want to do is the most important thing. That's that's the worldview that we live accord or you only live once. So make it so. So go at it with gusto, experience the ultimate pleasure that the world has to offer or this idea of that. I can't be judged. I'm the judge of myself. This is the worldview, the culture we're embedded in. And so Peter gives us a lot of help here in telling us how we handle when we're coming up against this and we're maligned. And look at verse 5. It says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
So he tells his readers, when you're being maligned, when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering because you're not doing what they're doing, know that one day they will face judgment. And I want you to be careful here. Because what this does mean, the one thing it means is that the judgment of these folks is taken out of our hands. Right? That God will ultimately judge them. So when my friends were coming against me, it wasn't me that was judging them. It was God who was judging them. It was God's standards that would one day judge them. One of the things that um, happened to me one other time is that we were, a friend of mine who was in seminary and I, he was older than me and we were outside of a, uh, of a, of a conference and there were, there were guys out there with signs and, uh, you know, the signs read God hates. There were a lot of them with a lot of different things, but, you know, God hates this. And, you know, the sign was right. There was nothing wrong with the sign. But one of the things that my friend did that, I, that just made an impact on me is that my friend went over and talked to the guy with the sign. And uh, the guy thought it was going to be a confrontation. And so then he, he found out we were seminary students. And it was almost like he was trying to find some other signs for us to hold. And what my friend asked him was this. How many of these people that you say that you're proclaiming God hates, how many of them have ever read that sign and come up to you and asked you how to reverse that? I thought that was a very powerful moment. That by the way that we can sometimes proclaim God's judgment, we can deter people. And and so I, I don't think that's what Peter is doing. I think what Peter is saying here by bringing up the judgment of God is not what I call the, uh, this is a very theological term, the nananaboo-boo uh, uh, theology, where we say, oh, I'm a Christian, you're not, nananaboo-boo, God's going to get you. That's not how God wants us to react. What I think the reason Peter is bringing this up, and we'll see it in verse 6, is that we are to have the attitude of Christ knowing that these sinners are going to be judged by God for their sin. And what was the attitude of Christ towards sinners? Was it to hold up a sign and scream and yell? Or was it to invite them in to experience the life of Christ? So verse 6, I think, is where we see this. And this is a hard text but I think, we can, I think we can iron it out uh, pretty easily, I hope. The, the thing that makes verse 6 a hard text is that many people want to go back to the sermon last week where we were talking about um, Jesus um, proclaiming something to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah and take this verse and say, hey, see, and, and I, I just want to briefly say why that's horrible, I think, um, uh, hermeneutically. And so I just want to lay, lay out just a different, uh, different couple of things. But look at verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Okay. Now the word used here, the gospel has been preached, is the word that we normally see in the New Testament for the gospel being preached. If you remember last week, we said that whatever Jesus was proclaiming, the word that Peter used, it wasn't this word that he uses in this text. It was a different word that meant proclaiming. So here... Is a different word, and it's talking about the gospel. It even brings up the gospel being preached. Secondly, notice last week when it was talking about uh, the 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 
in prison, it was the spirits who were in prison. And we had to make a distinction. What did this mean? Disembodied souls, fallen angels, whatever. This week, as we look at this text, verse 6, notice it says, those who are dead, that though they are just according to flesh as men, they may live in the spirit to the will of God, that everything in this text points towards that it's talking about humans. Humans. And thirdly, the context. The, the, uh, the context last week was way different. Way different. Jesus being um, victorious over, over the spirits, even fallen spirits. This week it's talking about the power of the gospel and the change that it makes in man's life. And take this. Notice what makes no sense if we interpret this another way. So, so here would be the message if we interpreted this that, that uh, somehow... You can be preached to once you're dead and you can accept the gospel. Then what Peter would really be saying is, hey, listen, abstain from this. Don't do this. Live in this different way. I pointed you to all kinds of verses today that say that. Why would Peter then say, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Suffer, suffer, suffer. But if you miss it, maybe there's a chance a little later. It's not what Peter is saying. So what is he saying? I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear when we really interpret this and we get into the mind of the of the person who would have been receiving this for the gospel has been has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. So what Peter is talking about is the gospel has been preached to people who have died. They've died. The gospel was preached to them. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, so although when they were alive, that you judged them and you maligned them and that they suffered, because the gospel was preached to them and they accepted it, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And the reason that this was important to Peter's readers is that in the first century, one of the things that troubled the church in the first century, and we see this particularly in the book of Thessalonians, is that There was a belief that if you became a Christian that you would never die. And what we see in the book of 1 Thessalonians is that uh, Paul lays out what happens to people when they die. And that we see this in the New Testament. And so as Peter is is driving home here, what they thought is that the second coming would already happen. What Peter is driving home here is that even though they have died, they are getting their reward. Because they have accepted the gospel. And I think if we boil this down and we really look at it, that one of the things that Peter is encouraging his reader here is he's saying that don't live like they live. They will have to give an account to one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the gospel for this purpose has been preached. The brothers and sisters, we know So our attitude towards those who may be maligning us, those who may be causing our suffering, those who may be causing our heartache, those who may be causing our pain, that our response to them is not to lean on the fact that they will be judged and stick out our uh, nose at them or, or thumb up our nose at them, but that what we are to do is to proclaim the gospel that God might too, even to them who are causing our suffering, cause them to be born again. So that when they finally stand before God, they won't be held accountable for their sins, just like you and I, if we've accepted Christ, are in Christ, 
are not held accountable for our sins. Everything hinges on your identity in Christ. And that we are to live in such a way in this world that shows where our true joy, where our true happiness is. And so that when that becomes in contrast with the world, that we are living out an example of that joy and that pleasure in the will of God and that it may draw a distinction and then you and I can be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. That we don't run with them and do the things that they do because our hope is not in this world. It's in something greater. So the question I have for you that I have for us living in the world we live in, are you willing to live this kind of life? Are you willing to take this encouragement that Peter has for us to heart and to live in such a way that shows that this world is not our home and this is not where we find our ultimate joy and ultimate pleasure? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are blown away by your mercy and your grace. God, I know that as this message is preached that there are some here who identify with the song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But God, I pray that we would remember the second part of that refrain in that song where we cry out to God, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And you know that even though we are in Christ, if we have accepted your son as our savior, that we are weak in our flesh and that our resolve uh, oftentimes grows weary and that we are tempted to drift and to get into things that we don't need to get into. And God, I would pray that for those who are listening this morning who are there, who may not even have the desire to follow your will, that God, your spirit would convict them and they would be overwhelmed by your love and your grace for them and they would find true joy and satisfaction in you. God, I pray that we would be a people that are unexplainable to the world. They don't understand our kindness, our generosity, our love, our patience. And they also don't understand why we don't go along with what they go along. And God, I pray that that would be an opportunity for us. An opportunity for us to share the good news that you sent your son to die for sinners. God, I pray for this. God, I pray that we would all have the opportunity to do that even this week. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me, we are going to end by singing the doxology. If you'll sing with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in